This is MindSpeak. Everything you thought you knew about health is about to be turned on its head. I'm Holly Higgins, a nutritional therapy practitioner, and I'm here to show you how your mind can heal your body, your body can heal your mind, and no matter what you've been told, you are in the driver's seat of your life. Let's go. Just a quick heads up, there's a couple parts of this episode where the audio quality gets a little dicey, but I could not bring myself to cut one second from this incredible interview. So just hang with us. I promise you will not regret it. Let's go to the show. Welcome to the show. Today, we are talking about the food mood connection, the holidays, and lots of other juicy things. I am so, so excited to announce today's very special guest. We have Dr. Nicole LaPera, aka the holistic psychologist. I know a lot of my audience, you guys know and love Nicole. And if you don't happen to be familiar with her work, it is my honor to introduce you to Dr. Nicole. You are going to be hooked. (laughs) You will not be able to get enough. So Dr. Nicole, welcome to the show today. Thank you so, so much for having me, Holly. And and seriously, for all of your support along the way and passing along my message to all of your people to speak to the point that some may know me and now for introducing me to the rest. It's beyond an honor. And I'm excited, selfishly, on a personal level to finally, in real time, get to chat with you because I've been looking at your work and really inspired by it for quite some time. Ah, that means a lot to me. Just, just all the back and forth love. It's, it's amazing. Um, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you came from, the, work you, the direction your work is headed in now for those who might not be familiar with what you do? Absolutely. So while I call myself a holistic psychologist now, it is definitely not the path that I was always walking. Um, in, so, in some ways it was, and in some ways it wasn't. But on a personal level, going as far back in time as I can remember when I was a little girl, I am someone whose life has always been punctuated with anxiety. I, I very much was familiar with the experience of being an anxious person, afraid of all the calamities of life that could happen to me, complete with obsessive thoughts. I even had my own version of compulsive tick-like behaviors. Quite honestly, Holly, as long as I can remember, that was my story. Um, Also, about the time, I don't know when it is, when one gets asked what you want to be when you grow up, for me, intuitively, you would have heard me talking about wanting to be a psychologist, mainly because I was so fascinated with the mind, um, with what makes people different than myself, the same course, when I was young, this came out a lot in my early relationships. Why are my friends doing different than I'm doing and trying to understand, (laughs) right? Their inner workings. And then I found the young adult section of the bookstore and I loved books my whole life. And I would always gravitate toward the story ones about people and their thoughts and the way they operate in the world. So when asked what I was going to be, it was going to be a psychologist. I felt like I'm one of those people who had the gift of knowing kind of their path in life. So flash forward, I went and obtained all of the training that goes along with being a, a psychologist. So I wanted, I wanted the practice. I wanted the space, the shingle where people came to my office to get better, quote unquote. So I took the path of 
a traditional uh, a program in clinical psychology. I, I received a PhD. That was the way that I would get to a, maintain my shingle. So on a again on a behind the scenes level, on a personal note, I should say my story with anxiety was the same. I thought I was always going to be an anxious person. That's what I had been told that once you're anxious, you have that chip, or you don't have that chip. You know, genetically, that that's what you're predispositioned or predestined to live. I thought my story would be about managing. So the way I chose to manage my own anxiety was the way many of us chose to manage our anxiety. I was in therapy and I was on medication. It was manageable. There was moments in my life where it didn't feel so manageable, but it was within a spectrum of always there. So I share that because a really big pivot happened. So flash forward in time, I had my practice. I was very thankfully able to have a pretty successful private practice pretty quickly. Uh, I was doing the work with week after week with, with clients and out of nowhere, I started to have, or seemingly out of nowhere, I started to have some really scary physical symptoms. I started to faint and I never, I never fainted before in my life. And for those of you who have fainted, at least for me, it was quite scary. Um, it happened, it would happen a couple times out of nowhere. I started to forget words mid sentence. And I, I've had that experience before and I'm very good with picking up another trail of words and talking myself so eloquently through, um, this happened actually in session a couple of times, but this forgetting of words felt just different structurally in my brain. Like I actually couldn't find a word to say my heart rate increased. I almost got sweaty. I had to tell the client in front of me, I'm really sorry. I just completely blanked in a way that I couldn't recover from. I started to forget names, names of people that I shouldn't forget their name. And all of that really led me to believe at this point that there was something physically wrong with me. My anxiety was still there. You know, nothing was different there. Nothing I looked around, nothing structurally looked hugely different in my world. So clearly something is medically happening. I located it, of course, to my brain. Like <laughs> where we all want, you know, the medical calamity to occur. So as a good as a good WebMD, you know, or, or I didn't go on WebMD, but I went online, Holly, and I went. I was like, okay, what are these symptoms? What could be going on? Pretty much, I wanted to die, self-diagnose and find the specialist that would help me treat whatever was wrong in my brain. Right. And I was shocked at what I started to discover in this self-exploration online. I was introduced to a whole new version of science. It is not that genetic predeterminism that I had learned at that point, even in school. And I was working with under that assumption that that was the truth. I learned about epigenetics. I learned that, okay, yeah, that's important. We all have genes and genetics we're born with, but there's a lot of things that we do each day. There's lifestyle and choices that come into play. I learned for the first time about the human body. And that they're, you know, that, oh, yes, okay, the brain is an organ contained in this meat suit of other organs, and there's a gut, and the gut is important. Why would I even have known the gut and then food? And, you know, so be it. And my snowball of information just expanded. And after a lot of self research and self honesty, I made a lot of changes. This was just personally now. I started behind the scenes and Thankfully, I have a very, very supportive partner who I could not have walked this journey without, who was struggling in much different ways, um, but a lot of stuck points, a lot of symptoms, also a lot of anxiety. So her and I changed our lifestyle together. And not only did did my physical symptoms go away, so I was finally able to settle into, okay, there's nothing wrong with my brain. And I was starting to feel physically better than I had my whole life. Mm. This baseline that I felt was 30s, you know, I kept telling myself, oh, 
this is just what it feels like to now be in your 30s because if I'm honest, Holly, I was sharing, you know, I'm tired all the time. I have headaches. I'm foggy. Everyone else around me was feeling that way too, was living for the weekend, was sleeping life away, was totally unmotivated. So my baseline looked like everyone else's. So I didn't know that physical health, that you could feel differently. So my physical symptoms went away, but notably my anxiety, this anxiety that was a backdrop was going away. And at that point, I, I, I was convinced personally that the tools that I was now using after a lifetime of using other tools that were more limited, these tools were working. Mm. But I think the scientist in me started to speak and say, okay, well, that's great, Nicole. You have an, an N, a sample of two. It worked for you and your partner. But how does this expand beyond that? At which time I had never really used social media in any professional way. I had my private accounts, my personal accounts. But I thought, okay, what what could this hurt? I'll go online and I'll start to speak. Because meanwhile, reminding you, I have my practice happening. I'm still going on week after week, every, you know, meeting with my clients, doing that more supportive model of treatment, not really talking about what's happening for me because I was taught not to talk about what's happening with me in the room anyway. Right. So I wanted to have an outlet. So that's when the Instagram account got created. I went on with no expectation, a little bit of fear about what people would think about this new message. Definitely fearful of what my colleagues would think. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about self-healing. I'm talking about this new science and these words that I've never heard. I knew they didn't hear. I mean, I assumed they didn't hear about them either because I didn't. And I know pretty much programs are very similar. Yeah. And within months, I was just talking, sharing my truth, sharing what worked for me. Not only did the account start to pick up steam quickly, you know, and the collective, I think, was speaking to me like, we're ready. We want to hear this. We relate. We too feel like this isn't working. Mm-hmm. I started to get messages that what I was talking about was, it was working. And now I was like, okay, this feels a bit more universal now. This changing my diet and changing my lifestyle in these ways. And talking about conscious breathing and consciousness is resonating and is working for people outside of my life and my relationship. And then I had the really heart. And obviously, um, this is a very long, expanded months upon months of evolution into this, because then the next step was I got really honest with myself mm. and about the future of my work. And I really realized that I couldn't just continue to go into that office and do that supportive talk therapy, even though I, I do feel like it's valuable for people on their journey to have that space. I just knew that I was working out of alignment if I wasn't utilizing the rest of these tools. And then I made the decision to take the hard pivot in a sense and really evolve the work that I was doing professionally as well too. Yeah. So you're on Instagram at the.holistic.psychologist and you're I mean, talk about rapid expansion. I think you're at 1.3 million followers right now, right? Yeah, mind-blowing. And like I say, I, 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 I take that as a testament to the, the collective and where they're at. I mean, I never would imagine those numbers. It still blows my mind to even think about, um, but I think it's just people that are ready. Yeah. And I think it's time and I think it's the collective consciousness coming together and saying, you know, it's time for this paradigm shift. It's time for these pivots. Like we're we're all ready to be self-healers and to embrace this work head on. So it has just been so inspiring watching you just because it gives me so much hope for just holistic approaches as a whole. And I think you're validating other holistic practitioners and other self-healers in such a massive way because I think for so long, 
you know, holistic practices were look at, looked at as like, oh, that's a cute little thing you can do on the side in addition to your mainstream treatment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I could, could not agree more. And I actually had, had heard somewhat of a similar message from my family when I started to share this new vision. And I, I don't fault them. They're not very connected with the online world and what that even means aside from the whole idea of holistic um, they're somewhat connected with that, but actually a statement that I heard back was an overwhelming, mm, I don't know if people are actually ready for that or if they would be that interested. And I agree with you and I understand it through the lens of, I think a lot of the archaic mindsets around, you know, helper guru and student or doctor and patient and this idea that someone else treats and fixes us. I at least see those as intergenerationally passed down. And there has been previous generations where that was the predominant belief. But now I think things are shifting and people are empowering themselves to the choices that they actually get to make in their daily lives that can be incredibly impactful that they do know. And I think that that's a big part of of the willingness to, to hear those messages and from a fear-based entry where I didn't know what my peers would think, it's been nothing but overwhelming support. People in the mm. mental wellness field of people who similarly want to update their practice and then people in other fields, it's just seeing other people like you and how they're using Instagram and sharing a same message or a same component of my message and equally having people interested in it. So I, I say that because all of these have been support to me along the way to keep showing up and sharing my message. Absolutely. And it's it's a message that we're all just so, so ready for. And I see us sh- really shifting from that movement of guru and I'm going to tell you what to do and I'm going to fix you and you're the poor little powerless victim to like healing through community and healing healing by walking beside a teacher. Not that the teacher is way out ahead in front of you and, and they are paving the path for you, but that they're just kind of pointing a flashlight and maybe holding your hand a little bit along the way as a friend. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why I, I have always, and I will always not only speak honestly about, I'm still healing. I still have a long time to go. I actually have settling into the reality, Holly, that there is no done. There is no end point. That utopian hammock, as I call it, that I desperately thought was my done place where I would just throw with my wind, my hair in the wind, throwing my hippie peace signs up is not going <laughs> to come that this life is about showing up for life, you know, day in and day out. Um, and I think that that's been a, a big, a big part of it for me. Yeah. And I think that real is I've had that same realization. I think it can be scary too, or we can also flip it into like, what an exciting gift that I get to keep learning and growing and evolving. Yeah, I love that that mindset shift. And what is the one thing about one of the many many state or quotes about um, impermanence and embracing that change is the only you know any cliche way we could say it change is the only constant things like that. And I joke because in terms of a partner, I could not have picked more opposite partner in <laughs> and so as a human that is in in many 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 ways. Uh, which has been a gift in my evolution and also a great challenge. But one of the ways that she and I are incredibly different, right? Just kind of intuitively at our resting state. Maybe it's an adaptation, quite honestly, now that I think about it. <laughs> as soon as I say that she can adapt. She's very much, we were talking about that this morning, based on her very unpredictable childhood. The gift 
um, amongst the very real deep rooted trauma that she has endured as a result of that unpredictability in an obviously negative way, the gift of it is adaptability. I mean, we were joking. And I could say, I said she could wake up in, in, you know, Guatemala tomorrow morning and she'd be like, Oh, is it Tuesday? <laughs> you know, I could not, I change and the impermanence of things for me is, is a part of my evolving journey or my healing journey that I still embrace. So I share that. I speak directly about it. You follow me on Instagram. You see that I'm doing the same things that I'm telling you to do. I'll be journaling every morning. I don't show all of my morning routine because you'd be there for a while watching. <laughs> you know, and I tell you the days when it was hard as hell for me to make those choices. So I think that's a part of it is just being honest that, you know, even those of us who quote unquote historically may have been viewed as having the answers, we're still just humans healing in the mm-hmm. same ways. And that is so refreshing because I think in in the old school model, you know, especially in a clinical mental health setting where you're not really allowed to talk about yourself or your own healing, the client or the patient then makes the assumption that like, well, they're perfect and they have everything figured out. But if you can share honestly, like, hey, I'm still doing the work too. Like that makes such, that makes the experience for the patient like so much easier. And, And just to know that like perfection isn't the goal, like you're always working through it. Yeah, I agree. And a lot of us are given that direct teaching not to share, not to disclose, not to be the human in the room that never sat comfortably with me. I would always say that even though I was instructed not to, I always inserted some of my humanity in the room because it just didn't feel so comfortable not to be. I mean, I wouldn't talk as openly as Mm -hmm. I do now. But, you know, we are given, a lot of us in the mental wellness field are given that message directly not to do that. Some of it comes, I think, more personally around, I'm going to use the word insecurity, but around some feeling that if I admit that I struggle, my concern being, what will my patient or client think? Will they not hold me in regard? Am I exposing this deep, dark, shameful secret that I don't have it all together that will cause them to question why the hell they're working with me, you know, and mm. that might come from a more personalized, I'm not good enough, I'm not worthy based narrative that a lot of us have that can be triggered in our professional world, especially because even the way it's set up in most therapy, at least, I am the person you come to for answers. That's just not, <laughs> I facilitate you finding the answers. And I do, I do agree that a lot of us are directly or indirectly urged to not show up just to play that function in the room. And it can be a real big disservice. And part of my challenge, and if I'm all, if I'm honest, as I started to go online and speak, honestly, it was hard because I was so used to filtering. This is much more deep rooted for me in terms of my family system and my earliest models of relationships. I was what I call externally focused, worrying about how everyone else would have um, experience me mm-hmm. and wanting to be experienced in the most palpable, positive way possible than being authentic and honest. So for me, that was a big challenge of my own healing. How can I show up and speak my truth without worrying as much or without, maybe I still worry about how that truth will sit with the listener, but I don't have to withhold the truth like I was doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I understand this whole don't share your story in the room thing from from a, a vantage point of like, you don't want to bogart the conversation. Like you're there for the client. But at the same point, I really believe, and it's been my own experience in practice, that the people who come to us they inevitably have similarities with us and that's why they're drawn to us. And we might be 
you know, we're walking the path with them, but we might be a few, a few steps further along in our journey or may have experienced something that would be really helpful to them. And if we can share our story and say, oh my gosh, I totally feel you because I went through a similar thing a couple of years ago. And, and here's some of the core lessons that I learned. Like that can provide so much healing, you know? Yeah. I don't, I don't disagree at all. You know, the, the living the same experience, even if it's not the same, you could hear a reframe or something that I do think we become, I always say, make the statement, Holly, we become, we're just so subjective Mm -hmm. experience in all ways. We're living it. We're filtering it through all of the mental filters that we've developed that are very, you know, we're just being us. So it really does sometimes take, that's why having a supportive helper relationship whether it's a therapist or some other practitioner, a friend even, is helpful because inherently they're not you. I mean, I used to make a joke when I would have my consult calls with you know interested individual clients when I was still doing that work. I'm not you. So I am automatically more objective. I can see you a bit clearer. So I can offer something that should you choose to listen and step outside of yourself might be of value. And if that's something that was, I lived in terms of my own journey, that could be the thing that just helps you be a bit more objective about yourself to break out of those older patterns. Oh, I love that so much. Nicole, one of the things I really want to dive into today is the food mood connection. And I know you touched a little bit about this um, in, in your intro, talking about all these tools for self-healing. And, and I know nutrition was one of them for you. Um, and I really want to dive into that today because that you and I are similar in that regard. So I used to be diagnosed with 10 different mood disorders. I was on 10 different medications. Like you, I was told the best you're going to be able to do is just manage this because this is genetic. This is your brain chemistry. And we're just going to get you through life a little bit more comfortably, but you're probably always going to struggle with this. And such a hopeful message, I'd say, Holly. I don't know if it felt that way to you, but... Oh, well, I'll tell you at first, like when I first got all these diagnoses, it felt really empowering because I was like, finally, somebody in a white coat with prestigious degrees has validated my pain. Yeah, I agree. And so while I always talk about my hesitancy around diagnoses and labels, I don't disagree. It can relieve the uncertainty and the discomfort that comes and the lack of validation that many of us do get not knowing or having the name for what yeah. it is. So I couldn't agree agree more with, with you that it can be initially incredibly helpful. Yeah. So initially it was incredibly validating. It's like my symptom, like I'm not the only one experiencing these symptoms. There's a name for them. And now this person is going to be able to help me. And oh my gosh, thank goodness. Because I mean, I had severe depression. I was laying in bed all day. I was, I, I was so anxious. I couldn't even go to the store. I had like intense you know, I was diagnosed with agoraphobia was just one of the things I was diagnosed with. And so initially there was so much hope, but then I got into treatment with talk therapy and medication. You know, I emotionally flatlined, I numbed out. Um, Talk therapy was helpful for a little while till it didn't feel helpful anymore. I felt like I was just spinning in circles with my trauma and kind of rehashing it week after week. And long story short, after years of feeling like these tools had only gotten me so far and weren't getting me any farther, I inadvertently discovered the power of nutrition. And it was because I had gained all this weight on psych meds and I was just trying to lose weight. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
Um, so I, I came across essentially like an anti-inflammatory paleo style elimination diet. I was just trying to lose weight. And by the end of 30 days, I was like, whoa, for the first time in years, I feel legitimately happy. And so I went down this rabbit hole of studying the food mood connection, um, eventually went back to school for nutrition. And now that's one of the things that I help people with in my practice is eating well for mental health. And, um, yeah. And then I was, so I went from being validated my, by my diagnoses to being really angry that nobody had ever shared these tools with me. Like, Hey, if you change your diet, your mood is going to improve by like 70%. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It can be really angering Holly, but the way I understand that, yes, completely valid anger. Mm-hmm. My, my, I think the reality though is, and a lot of the people, at least again, the professionals even who are just, dis- you know, disseminating the advice, whatever it might be, that does not include nutrition, aren't actually knowledgeable. I mean, from what I know at the few doctors I know, one of whom was a psychiatrist that I used to treat, never once are they given any nutritional awareness course. So I do believe some of it is just ignorance, lack of education. People are not going to say that to you because they're not aware of that themselves. Um, and I agree, but it can be an extremely infuriating and validating in a lot of ways. And it was the foundation for me as well, upon which I believe all other change became possible because as far as I see it now, that's why I was surprised to think that, oh, I should consider the human body when I'm talking about a mind. I had to really break it down. The mind is a brain. It's in a body, right? So, oh, okay, this might be why I need to worry about the bottom half of me. But those imbalances that I think a lot of us are struggling or suffering with the diets that we're eating, the nutrition that we're eating or that we're not eating, or the lifestyle choices that we're making, we're living in a body that's so unbalanced that no amount of mental wellness, you know, or mental practices, you know, the meditations, yes, that's important. That's part of it. Yes, breathwork, important part of it. That helps also the body regulate. But without those physiological imbalances being treated and rebalanced, we're going to continue to live those symptoms. And I think that played a big role like you in my own healing as well. Absolutely. And just, just to jump back to the anger really quick, it's not that I was mad at, you know, my particular therapist or psychiatrist or doctor. I was just, I had all this anger that this wasn't part of our systemic approach. Like I was angry at the system, yeah. <laughs> not my individual practitioner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah. I do agree with you. It's a really, it's a, really broken for the most neutral way to put it system in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. And I think, again, I think people are waking up to its brokenness without even going into a conversation about why it got broken or whether or not it'll get fixed. I, I remain in power that there's people, humans like yourself and myself and many others at this point that are learning the full, the fuller truth and are then therefore sharing it. So I will all, you know, if I'm ever asked, you know, are you going to go, 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 go to bat with school and change this? <laughs> my answer is always going to be saying, no, that's not how I envision, or that's not in alignment with how I'm going to spend the, you know, I'm grateful for the people who might take greater issue with systems. I do believe that they are needed. That's not my journey. My journey is going to continue to empower the humanity, you know, level of things. Um, because I just, you know, I don't know when school systems are going to change. Um, and it's just not how I'm choosing to invest my energy. Do I hope they change? Yeah. Do I plan to offer a version of uh, training or education in case they don't change? Hell yeah. 
so that people can go to a place and understand in a more comprehensive way tools that I feel are necessary. But am I going to fight the change in, in terms of the political level? Probably not. Yeah, I was asked a similar question on, uh, I was interviewed last week and the guy asked me, you know, tell me how you're fighting the Western medical conventional system. And I said, actually, I'm not fighting because I don't even need to fight and I don't live in the energy of fight. I just open my door yeah. for the people who are ready yeah. for something else. And like, there's a line out that door because people are ready. Yeah, I we don't even that. need yeah. We don't even need to fight. Yeah, that's yeah. a that's a promise I made to myself, Holly. You go on, you get through all the discomfort, Nicole, of being vulnerable and speaking this new truth and all the fear and just rest assured that I knew going on that my message would not be for everyone. I know it still won't be for everyone. It's not my intention to send out a message that is for everyone because again, I know that that's out of alignment for me. So I'm going to speak my truth and I rest assured knowing that the people I would never have imagined it was a million point three of those people, but to speak to you, I open my door and then the people who are attracted to my truth are there. Exactly. Exactly. And bouncing back to what you said about, um, I'm going to pull out a Dr. Kelly Brogan quote real quick. We can't, (laughs) we can't heal our brains without healing the bodies in which they reside. Um, we have to have that physiological stabilization of balanced blood sugar, calm inflammation, a healthy gut, because there's that gut brain connection. We have to have our physical organism stabilized in order to do, many of us, in order to do the work, you know, the heady work of mental wellness, of working through relationships and thought patterns and boundaries and positive self-talk. And for me, you know, I was in therapy trying to do some of this work and it wasn't until I achieved that baseline stabilization with my body that I was even stable enough to do some of the mental work. Was that true for you too? 100%. And I feel like that's true for a lot of us for a couple of reasons. I could come into my, just hypothetically, I come into my practitioner, my therapist, whoever it is, I have a great insightful session, mm-hmm. right? Maybe I even have a game plan for what I want to see change in my life. Maybe it has to do with my lifestyle choices. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe it has to do with how I show up in relations, whatever it is. A couple things happen when I leave that door. I go continue to make lifestyle choices that keep me imbalanced, which means I'm still living the same symptoms, regardless of that insightful session, right? If I don't, if I'm not aware, put it this way, that I have to change those body-based areas, I don't change them. Why would I think to? Right. I'm still living the anxiety, the brain fog, the depression, you know, all that which comes with those physiological or can be contributed to by those physiological imbalances. So again, week two comes back and I still get a report, nothing changed. Mm. Another thing that happens, and this is again, something that isn't, I'm going to actually break it down to three. Another thing is those of us who experience trauma. There's a lot of us, not just the big T. I expand that. There's a lot of little T traumas, unmet needs, uh, childhood wounds that a lot of us are living the reason we're interested in trauma and I'm interested in expanding that definition is trauma results in a dysregulated nervous system. So again, incredibly insightful session, right? I want to change whatever my overreaction in these areas of my life. I still go out and I live that overreaction. I'm really generalizing with an overreaction. I'm not trying to minimize or invalidate the effects of trauma in any way. I've lived them. So I totally same here. Yeah. Because of why I didn't address my nervous system. My nervous system is still so dysregulated and so hypervigilant that I'm in perpetuity waiting for the next shoe to drop. And that little shoe drops every moment of my day when the toothpaste is on the counter, when someone cuts me out at work, right? And I'm constantly reactive. I don't have choice in those moments. My nervous system, 
a third category that I think happens, credibly insightful session. I map out all the ways I want to do different. I go out and I still repeat those patterns. Why? Because those patterns live in our subconscious, mm. little, known, little known area of the brain that again was just so conveniently left out of any of my training. Wow. And it's the most impactful, in my opinion, area of the brain because using the computer analogy that I think a lot of us are familiar with lives all the programs that have been imprinted or internalized by us, most of it starting at a very young age that don't work for us. So even I can have a great conversation with a client who totally understands it. They want to start showing up differently, say in their primary relationship, and this is how they're going to show up differently. So the next time my partner says this, I'm going to do this and it's great. Break. If I go out, you know, and I'm on autopilot that day, that's not going to happen. Best laid plans when I go, I say unconscious, when I go on unconscious and I let my subconscious on the show, what it's going to do is what it always does. When your partner does that thing or says that thing, it's going to have that same reaction it's always had. So that's the third category and why I talk endlessly about consciousness. Because insight in that beautiful session where I was so insightful happens when I'm in my conscious part of my mind. I can see all the connections. I can even plan for what I want to do to change. Unless I maintain that consciousness, I'm not showing up differently in that really integral moment where I have to choose a new choice to respond to my partner. I'm showing up in the same way that I am. So those, I think, are the three main areas why one moment in time, even one great insight that we're having, if we're not addressing the body and our nervous system, we're limited in the healing and the change that we can give to ourselves and to offer modeling to others. Yeah, absolutely. So just to recap those really quick, because that, man, you just laid out so much goodness there. So there's, um, there's the body. So, you know, dealing with these underlying physical, physiological imbalances that, you know, no amount of talk therapy is going to solve. Yeah. Yeah. There's the nervous system. And you talked about the other shoe dropping. I call it shoe dropper syndrome, where we're constantly waiting for that bad thing to happen to us. And we can't even enjoy the good times because we're on, oh, when's the next terrible thing going to happen to me? Because our nervous system's haywire. Um, and we could, we could do a whole other episode on yeah. trauma and what is trauma because I see so many people who have trauma, but they, they don't th- feel like they have permission to call it trauma because it wasn't quote unquote bad enough. What happened to them? Yeah, me too. I lived in that and it can be incredibly confusing. I think for, for those of us who, when we look back and we don't see the big glaring things that we know cause issues where we wonder that just for a lot of us, let me put it this way, strengthens a deep belief of I'm broken. Exactly. Right. Oh, I must be broken then because nothing really external cataclysmic is checking the boxes that would, you know, explain why I'm not well. And I do, a lot of us have that, what is it, next, waiting for the shoe to drop? I love that. Shoe dropper syndrome. (laughs) We also, and I want to expand that because part of what happens when we are in fight or flight, and I share this often because I think a lot of us have this experience and similarly believe us that we're damaged. As humans, we are gifted with emotions. We have a a wide range. I want to say there are six or seven core emotional feelings, positive and negative, they span, that we have as humans. We need them evolutionarily to keep us safe. They actually contain information. What starts to happen for some of us is we become, when we live in fight or flight with that overactive nervous system because either an acute or a consistent chronic trauma is we actually restrict our emotion, our perception and our emotions become so restricted. Mm. And the experience of that quite literally is when we are in survival mode, I break everything down a lot to evolution because I think it can really be helpful. Yeah. We are, I know that none of this isn't 
logically mapping onto the case, right? A fight with my partner isn't the difference between my organism living or dying. But in terms of my nervous system, it might as well be. My nervous system is activated in fight or flight. So I might as well be fighting for my life in that moment. Meaning my perception shrinks. All that matters is me and my survival into the next moment. I cannot care even. This is why we can be mean when we're in fight or flight mode, some of us. I don't care, even though logically I care very much about this person on the other end of my you know, vicious aggression or my withdrawal that's equally as painful. People don't care. Relationships don't, I mean, people don't matter. Relationships don't matter. And our emotions shrink. And I share this because as, as crazy as this might seem, until really I began healing, Holly, I didn't know how to, I didn't practice experiencing joy. I had no room for joy or spontaneity or ease or the really the whole positive end of my emotional spectrum. Because when my perception was strong my whole life and when all I could do was survive, I don't know if you're familiar with Abraham Maslow. I yes, hierarchy. Because that's yeah. just and that contains a lot of information. You can't actualize. You can't do higher order stuff like love and joy if you're in survival. So I share that because I think a lot of us are like, why? And I would say this to clients often and they'd feel really relieved when I say, I, I didn't know joy. I'd actually cultivate joy and practice joy and practice first bringing my body into balance so that then I could be in joy in a new way. And that was a whole part of my healing journey was going back to that entire spectrum of human emotions that was so restricted for me for so long. Oh my gosh. I love that because especially in American culture, um, we are taught that happiness should be the default. And if you're not unhappy, like what's wrong with you? And then the other, yeah, what you said about widening your emotional spectrum, it's only been within the past couple of years, Nicole, that like I have felt safe being happy. Like prior to a few years ago, and even 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 more recently with some of the trauma work I've done, feeling happy, feeling joy, feeling good did not feel safe because I was always waiting and preparing for that other shoe to drop. Yeah. Oh man. So so those two things, and then finally the subconscious mind, which I love that your work touches on that. So you can go in, have an amazing therapy session, and these things can be running in the background. So touching back on that number one thing, really balancing your body through practices like good nutrition and breath work and exercise so that your brain can then be supported. And sleep, throw that in there. Societally, Holly, Uh, I I had to do a lot of sleep training for myself because while I always loved sleep, I didn't have the best sleep habits and that can and that that's the interaction though right because when i'm anxious or depressed say i sleep too much i sleep too little so all of this becomes so interconnected but sleep is something that's incredibly overlooked i think by a lot of us but incredibly more important than we know oh my gosh sleep is huge 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 um and you always reference somebody is it matthew walker who you reference about sleep i read one of his book i'm blanking on the name of it but he has a great book on, on sleep that was really important for me, um, played a really big role. And again, this change doesn't happen overnight with sleep. A lot of us struggle in the sleep department in a lot of ways with sleep hours, work schedules affect sleep. But yeah, Matthew Walker is a great kind of sleep 101, really understand the importance of why sleep is important um, and then how to go about making changes in sleep. Yeah, yeah. So I was wondering, Nicole, could you talk a little bit about 
So you discovered this food mood connection too, started eating better for your mental wellness. Can you talk about what your relationship with food was like prior to that? I sure can, Holly. And I'm so glad you asked because as you and I talk so glibly about, oh, change food, real easy. It's not so easy for a no. lot of us. A lot of us have very... Food is not just the nutrition. If I'm educated enough to know what's even nutrient-dense and what's not, it's well beyond that. Um, it's not logical. We have a lot of conflictual... Many of us have a lot of conflictual relationships with food. So a couple of my conflicts that I... I, I knew some um, for some time and some of them were more newly discovered in my feeling. Um, so for me, food... Well, so food... Let me think about food in general. I became, I would say in my 20s, I became aware of food as a component for health in some ways. I was miseducated on what I thought was healthy and not at that time. Um, but food crossed my radar. Uh, one of the relationships I was in, the person was interested in, you know, was knowledgeable. So I kind of started to educate myself. Oh, food's important. My mother, I want to exp- uh, throw her in the mix too. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> Oh, oh, Rosalie, back to mom somehow. But my mom, because <laughs> interestingly, my mom was very much in, into alternative assistant protocol. So like you were saying earlier, it's actually funny now that I think about it, how much it applies. It was the cute little thing that my mom would do on the side. Right. Chronically ill. So I don't know if I've mentioned that uh, as we spoke today, but my mother is chronically ill. So she would be going to conventional doctors, has the back pocket of very strong pain pills, and is ordering turmeric as well from you know her alternate health guide. So I was aware of the holistic world in some ways, but I was much more primed in terms of food too. I was much more primed for the more conventional approach. So my relationship with food, I caught wind that food was something to consider, though didn't really have all of the pieces um, that fit for the way my body functions. I've always used food... A lot of the times, I think when we think of food, we think of control. You know, it's my way to control. Um, food for me in my family was one of the ways that I connected with my mother. Mm. My mom is very emotionally distant. So our main conversations, because I then developed an interest in food. I like to cook. I like to pair foods together when I was like in my teenage years. So food became the dialogue between me and mom. So on the deeper level, food for me meant connection with mom. It was the conversations we could have, the way I would feel close to her. When I moved away, our weekly conversations are, what did you have for dinner last night? What are, you know, and So very much connection. Another narrative I discovered in my food behaviors was around scarcity. Mm. This scarcity mindset for me would come up in food. And I saw this predominantly. This was newer awareness in my current relationship. So what do I mean when I'm in scarcity? I have this idea that things are either mine or yours, me versus you, that there's this kind of you're having results in my lacking of something. And again, this is very deep-rooted, connected to very much family dynamics I've lived and and, uh, emotional childhood devoid in a lot of ways of emotional connection. So what this translated to is I live with my partner, of course, so we share food. We eat the same diet, just so happens. That's great. We share food. So what I would notice is I would become incensed when my half or what I deemed to be my half of whatever (laughs) product it was had gone missing. And she's just casually, you know, she is very different than me existing in the world. And she decided to eat that other half of that brownie. Why not? Nothing was malicious about it. We never even discussed it. 
put a line in the brownie. This is your, you know, it just kind of <laughs> was flowing and I was not. And when I opened that fridge and my brownie wasn't there, I would lose it. So what I came to realize is I was operating with this, that scarcity idea that there was not enough. I mean, I live in Philadelphia, like center city, like brownies are on my corner. For, you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure you can hear the beautiful noises of the city existing on this podcast. Philly's right out there. Anything I want is, I mean, or I can order it with my phone. So right. it wasn't logical and nor was my emotional reaction. So that was a big part of it for me. So when I made the decision to change my food, I got a little bit more educated on the type of foods and how often I was eating the type of foods that are gut damaging to speak to the point you very beautifully made about inflammation. Mm-hmm. I was chronically inflamed. That really contributed to a lot of my symptoms. My gut was chronically damaged. I, because of my mother, lived on antibiotics and pain medicine from a very, very young age. So I had all of that dysbiosis and you know happening in my gut that I had to treat. So I had the I had new information um, to implement, but then as I implemented it logically to serve my body, then I was met with those older models of eating. Where to connect, sometimes I would want to talk to my partner, who I can talk to about more than food. Put it this way: right? <laughs> I'm like, "What's for dinner?" And she's like, "Do you really mean what's for dinner, or is there something else going on?" I was like, "Oh yeah, I guess I just want to connect." Or same thing with scarcity. Did you really want, you know, the other half of that apple, Nicole? Or are you just feeling, you know, I don't really, I didn't really want the other half of the apple. That, that was more about. So while, yeah, we can logic and we can inform ourselves about the nutrition that works for us, another layer of the healing journey, I think for a lot of us is then changing our relationship with food, which could touch upon some of those deeper meanings that many of us have wrapped up around food and eating in general that are beyond what makes my body feel good. Exactly. Those deeper emotional drivers, because if it was as easy as, oh, you know, just change your food and your mood will improve drastically. I mean, people would be eating this up like hotcakes, but they're so (laughs) gluten-free banana collagen protein hotcakes. But there's all these other layers, you know, not only family dynamics and scarcity mentality, but you know, a lot of clients that I've worked with, and, and I've just seen so many examples of this, is that food isn't just our nourishment. Food is often our number one emotional coping tool. So on the one hand, we can have this brilliant knowledge of like food can drastically impact and improve my mood. But if I have a crappy day, I'm going to go eat five of those brownies. And do you have any, any thoughts on, on how we can make those shifts, Nicole, when we know that eating well makes us feel emotionally good, but the minute we have a, a, a crappy day, we're reaching for the ice cream, we're reaching for the, the wine, the whatever? Yeah, 100%, Holly. And I think the first answer I always respond is, first and foremost, being aware. Mm-hmm. Change, really simply, as far as I see it, happens with two main steps. The first step is consciousness, is learning your patterns, observing yourself enough to know that you are the person that goes for those brownies or that ice cream, ice cream for me, when I'm you know, <laughs> feeling not great. Know that about yourself. And I say that, that might seem so, you know, maybe for listeners, I do know that, but some don't. Some of us humans aren't, haven't observed the patterns in ourselves enough to have that conscious awareness. That opens the door for change, for me to now show up differently after that really bad day or after that argument where I would go break into those cookies or those brownies and make a new choice. 
So learn our patterns, observe them to help set you up for success in that second area. Success in that second area, though, Holly, does not happen overnight. I'm not just going to know and break the habit and never dive into those cookies or brownies again the next time I'm feeling sad, mad, whatever it is that I'm feeling. So the concept that I always talk about in terms of any change in this step two area is a small daily promise. First and foremost, this is highlighting the expectation that change is going to be quick, it's going to be easy, or it's going to happen in one fell swoop. None of which I'm here to tell everyone, I'm often the bearer of the bad news, not going to be the case. Change is universally hard. Damn with- it. <laughs> what? Are you oh, serious? Yeah. Yes, change is hard. Well, I could. And this is um, such a bummer. I thought I, I thought I, you were going to fix me. I thought you I, had all the answers. I do think it speaks to that part of ourself that desperately wants that. I did. I right. want, I share this though, Holly, in all seriousness, because I've seen and heard and done so myself. We can be our worst critics, as they say, right? But in so many ways, we can take the reality that change is hard in so many unhelpful directions. As I watch myself struggle with change, I could think change isn't meant for me. Medically mm. predisposition to be in this corner in this way. I did this all the time with my very different partner. She lived and her body and the way she was in the world was very different. Like I said earlier, right? I, for a very long time, saw her put her in a separate box than me. My box had a little bit of a perimeter. I could walk to this end and this way and change a little bit over here, but then I was done and I was contained. And I could never change enough to be in her box or in her circle, right? So mm. he was a prime example of I made myself different and I made all the logical reasons why I was different. I, you know, So a lot of us do that when we struggle with change. We think it's not meant for us. We cannot achieve change. I do know when we put the expectation up too high to change five, to do five new things starting tomorrow, that can be the difference between if I continue to do those five new things or if I bag it because one new thing is hard enough, let alone five. So I talk often about change in small areas. So if you're the person who eats when you're feeling a negative emotion, once you've gained the awareness of that, set one small promise. Sometimes I, I play around the concept of time, right? So meaning as soon as I'm aware, and part of it is you have to be not only con- practice consciousness to, to know and observe yourself, we have to cultivate that. So in that moment, I just got home from work. I'm having a bad day. I'm sitting on the couch, right? The first thought of the brownies in the cabinet pops into my mind, right? That's what's going to happen. Oh, I have brownies in there. That's exactly where I'm headed, right? I need to be online, aware at that moment, or else I'm an automaton walking around and I'm, I tune back in when I'm halfway down the brownies, right? So I'm conscious. I catch my thought. Brownies, good. Go get, right? I'm feeling yes. sad, man, whatever. Sometimes I suggest we play around with time. Okay, all well and good. Maybe give your set a five-minute timer on your phone. And in five minutes, if you still really need to soothe that feeling of mad or sad, whatever it is, with, or if you still choose to soothe that feeling with those brownies, go soothe it. But a lot could happen in those five minutes. Mm. You could actually ride the wave of that feeling enough that you could give yourself another five-minute challenge. That might last the entirety of the night. You might never eat those brownies. It might not. Knowing that the brownies are in the cabinet could be your fail seat. Now you know that that feeling will go away for another night. But in those periods of time, you're at least opening the door and giving yourself the opportunity to make a new choice. And then of course, the deepest work for anyone listening who is relating to this is to develop some new soothing tools. What are new ways that you can, that has to be replaced now 
with something else? Can you either A, learn to tolerate feeling sad and not doing anything? Can you just be in your sad or you're mad? Do you need to do something? That's totally fine. We need a toolkit. Is it a bath? Is it a walk? Is it calling a friend? What else can you do to soothe that feeling that's not that more problematic behavior of say eating? Yeah. Oh, I love I love what you said about time and I've played around with that too. And then a question that I like to ask myself and I encourage my clients to ask themselves in that window of time is what am I really craving? Just like you said, it wasn't really about the apple or the brownie. That wasn't really what was going on. Oftentimes when we're craving foods, you know, that like cookies and ice cream and wine that we tend to reach for when we're stressed, we're actually craving something else. We're craving connection. We're craving support. We're craving a good cry. So, so what are you craving? Yeah. Oh, I love that. And so, oh, and then also replacing your self-soothing mechanisms with something else. We all need that toolkit. It can't just be like, oh, let's take away your warm little snuggly blanket of comfort and like just leave you naked in the cold. Like yeah. you need another healthier blanket. <laughs> well, those, Holly, and everyone listening, those are so real. The feelings that we're having as humans are real and valid and there. And even if you w- try to will them away or deal with them without that blanket, it doesn't, you don't have to do it. On, and I always acknowledge this too. We all have a tool. We've all developed the one way or maybe the two ways that we cope with our really big emotions. We had to. But unfortunately, a lot of us dealt with that way of coping, whether it's food, whether it's self-harm, whether it's externalizing behaviors. I yell, I scream, right? I do something to someone else. I discharge out. We've all developed it at a time and a place where we were not modeled different. We weren't supported in developing other tools. So not always are the, those are however the ones that are going to be stored in that subconscious that are going to come out. That's why when we're quote unquote triggered, we're honest, we do act a little childlike, most of us at least. We either kick and scream and tantrum or we <laughs> detach and dissociate because that's when it was formed. So I acknowledge that because I want everyone listening to understand we all have a, a tool, if not two. It's about updating now and amplifying and having more options. We all can cope. We just need to develop healthier ways to cope. And I say that because I think a lot of us don't feel like we have anything available to us. We've always had a thing. It's just not always a thing that serves us now as an adult. And I say that because we can empower ourselves and we can sometimes we look at those older coping skills with shame. Oh, I shouldn't react in that way. And if we can honor that that was a little part of us that was so resourceful and adaptive that survive something that maybe felt unsurvivable at the time. And that was the only way that that little person could do that. We can maybe honor, I think, that part of ourselves in, in a new way. It doesn't mean we won't change. Of course, we want to change and update and be a bit more mature and a bit more emotionally resilient and not damage ourselves or our relationships, of course. But I offer that reframe. So I know we can get really mean and really shameful about these things that were just helpful adaptations to get us through when we had no other options. Mm, I love that. Honoring that inner child part of ourselves that was always just doing the best that, that they could to get through, you know, those, those coping mechanisms that we curse ourselves for. Like I have a lot of coping mechanisms that like, man, my little self, she knew what was up. She knew how to cope. And I'm going to, I'm going to choose new coping mechanisms as an adult, but I can go back and thank my little self for getting through all the things that she got through. Absolutely. Oh, I love that. 
So you touched a little bit on this, this idea that you talk about so much, which is so important, which is this idea of keeping small promises to yourself. And I had a really great question from a client recently. She asked, is there any way that we can make small promises fun? And how can we convince our brains that these small promises actually matter when we are all obsessed with this overnight transformation, the big sexy reveal? It's so easy to say that these small habits don't matter. Is there a way to kind of like gamify this or make it fun, Nicole? Yeah, I love that question. So whoever that client was, I really love that. So I build, I make three suggestions around these daily small promises that I urge us to begin to keep to ourselves. Um, I, you know, in terms of the, the fun, a small promise can be anything. I've been cover, I've been highlighting, I have a follower um, who's done some incredible work of changing. And I put her in my story last week and she impa- her story impacted a lot of people because her first small promise, I don't know, it's not, it's not necessarily a fun example, but was a glass of water. One, that was it at the start of her day. I mean, yeah. you could pick a fun small promise. The small promise can be anything because while yes, the concept of small promise helps to create habit change or lifestyle change. So, so maybe t- some, some areas won't be so fun. But there's a deeper psychological why for building a small or the small promise practice that I suggest. And that psychological why is most of us have suffered what I call self-betrayal, mm. which comes in a, in a few, through a few different paths, one of which is being a human who has tried to change and can't because, like I said, change is hard. The more you make promises to yourself that you don't keep, the more there's a little, I, I always kind of say it's a little person in your subconscious rolling the eyes at the next promise. Like, okay, yeah, Holly, sure you will. Tomorrow, <laughs> you know, like just like you did last time, whatever. We know how that's going to end. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's exactly what it is. So that's one path of self-betrayal is we don't really trust ourselves. Deeper reasons we don't trust ourselves. We were not able to be fully ourselves. So we've compromised ourselves based on our environment. So before we know it, we're looking at this being that we're living and we just, we kind of roll our eyes at this person. We just don't trust them. So the deeper reason of the small promise practice, in, in addition to creating lifestyle habits, whether they be fun or not fun, is rebuilding that trust. So I make three suggestions around this small daily promise. Come up with whatever it might be. So for this, this client that you're sharing, be it a fun one. You know, what do you, what does that person like to do? Do they like to dance? Do they like to, you know, whatever it is that they, or maybe what, what, what would they like to do? Keep it small. Each and every time that promise is kept, I suggest a three-step, if you will, process. The first is noticing that you did it. Mm. Notice a lot. We need to build, to rebuild that trust. We have to start to consciously observe that I did what I said. A lot of us just put that new small thing, dance, a minute of dance on my to-do list. And I'm not even really paying attention to the fact that I checked those boxes. Also a really practical habit because I think a lot of us judge our day by what we didn't do as opposed to what we did. So this is another helpful reframe and acknowledge yourself when you showed up for that fun or not fun thing. So notice it goes, that's how we rebuild that trust. Enough noticings, that little eye roller tends to be like, oh no, wait a minute. Hold on. You do what you say now. Okay. Step two, resist any and all urges because I made it a point to suggest the promise be small to invalidate or minimize it. We all have that critical voice that loves to lurk here and try to diminish where it was only one minute or it wasn't even that fun when he did it. Don't ever do it again. It's just your <laughs> subconscious trying to keep you safe out of that new habit. 
right? You, you do not have to give any attention to that voice. Don't expect it not to be there if you're someone who always have that voice, but don't diminish exactly what you just did for yourself. So you notice and then you can remove your attention from, don't focus on the voice that might try to tear you down. And then the third step I describe is a bit more long-term because the reality is some of these practices, one moment a day, isn't going to significantly change or you're not going to get the immediate positive feedback that we're all looking for. And I agree. So like your client said, the reveal at the end where I can put myself out there, we have to keep motivated to get to that end. I assure you though, Holly and whoever's listening, the small changes will accumulate. It might not be tomorrow. It might be next week or 10 days from now or two weeks from now. Make it a habit though of noticing. Because as you notice now, it's incredibly first and foremost, as far as I've experienced, empowering. Oh, these small promises that I did for myself are changing the way I'm showing up in the world. That's really empowering. It also keeps me walking forward to get to that end, to get to that reveal. So on day 15, when my mental resistance is there, just like it was day one through 14 telling me why not to do it, day 15, I have noticed why I'm doing this. I'm a bit calmer. Maybe I have a bit more control over my reaction. Whatever it is for you, notice. Remind yourself. That's something else I, I attest to. You're going to have to be an active participant in creating and maintaining change. You cannot just wait to be inspired. A lot of us wait to want to. And if we don't want to, we think it's a sign that our intuition is telling us not to. Mm. That's just our subconscious. So we have to create that inspiration, create that motivation, and participate in reminding ourselves why we're doing that thing even when our subconscious is kicking and screaming and telling us not to. And that could apply to a fun, small promise or not fun, small promise. But that's how, as, as far as I see it, we keep ourselves walking forward. Ah, I love that. And, and what you just highlighted points to the fact that it's not even necessarily about keeping this promise because it's going to get you to an end goal, but it's about keeping this promise so that you can learn to trust yourself again. Yes. which is the foundation yes. of all of it. Yes. That's what it comes down to. So whether the, make the promise, that's why I say make the promise fun, make it easier for you to keep it because on that deep level, that's what we're concerned about doing, rebuilding that trust in ourselves. So then when you get to the not fun promise that might benefit your life, you feel a bit more empowered to do that. You don't have to start with the nitty gritty, hard as hell, you know, kind of promises or changes. Start, start, I always say start with periphery, start in an area where either you can make it fun or you can, Get yourself to do the new thing. Don't dive into the hardest thing on the plate to do first. Create change elsewhere. Get some momentum. It's still going to be hard as hell when you go into that really hard area, but get yourself rolling forward and feeling confident. Uh, I love that. Create the momentum in an area that's a little bit easier. So when you get to the really hard thing, it's it's still hard and it might still suck, but you you know innately that you can do it. Gosh, I love that. Nicole, when you're on, when you're pursuing this path of holistic wellness, whether it's through diet, meditation, whatever, it's very common to experience judgment and misunderstanding from others. I think we touched a little bit on this earlier, who might be locked into some of the old, more conventional paradigms. They might say things like, oh, gluten doesn't have anything to do with your mood. Just have a little, you know, especially as we're moving into the holidays and this time of year. Do you have any quick thoughts you could give us about navigating misunderstanding from others who don't get your healing path? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, well, I know, backing up, you'll always hear me talk about, as far as I see it, three core needs that all of us humans universally share. 
to be seen, heard, and understood. Mm. Meaning I believe we all come with that prepackage, that desire. So sitting here and wanting to be understood and suffering the discomfort of being misunderstood, I believe is a universal reality that many of us struggle with at different times. Um, and I couldn't agree with you more that as whether or not we're talking holiday period or not, holidays are particularly challenging because we are expected in some ways or choosing in some ways to show up maybe with families or friends that, you know, do can challenge us that maybe just aren't making the lifestyle choices that we would be making. I know I lived this experience as I started to change my lifestyle. It either became difficult or not really appealing for me to go do the same old things that my older relationships were doing. I didn't want to be at happy hour all the time. I wasn't interested in being, I mean, I can't even stay up now past nine o'clock. So <laughs> nighttime events were like, my friends know, like, unless it's in the afternoon, like you're not seeing me. Like I'm, I, I cannot, I do not do night anymore. I'm tired. I'm sleep. Right. So you got it. My, my, so it, it was hard. It was challenging. I think, you know, holidays, like I said, are, are, are really difficult in terms too of a lot of us are exposed to going home and, you know, living lifestyle choices that aren't going to be the most misunderstood. And I think the more we can get comfortable with all of the work, as I see, it starts within, you know, as soon as we can, if we can understand ourselves, this is aside from a conversation about boundaries and limits, the practical approach of this is you might have to be honest with yourself and change or limit some of the ways you're showing up or not showing up around these holidays, right? You know, if it's that one group of friends that, you know, every time you go to that Christmas party, it ends some way you don't want it to end. You might actually have to put a limit on whether or not you go or how long you go or how you engage when you're there. So boundaries is, I think, the very practical, logistical conversation that we can have with ourselves in a very honest way, looking around toward the holiday plans or the challenging areas. And if we do need to modify, not to say it's going to be easy, you know, not to say that as I, as I start to show up less or limit the way I'm showing up, that I might not get some feedback. I might. might be uncomfortable. I might also get feedback from what I call my feel bads. I might just feel guilty or bad for not going, mm. whether or not my friends care or have might anyway. I could be torturing myself and my own mind about not being there. So the practical is the boundaries that could be really helpful around how sometimes limiting doesn't mean you can't see that family member or go to that experience. It might just be giving yourself a period of time that you can tolerate being there before you're going to be at risk for engaging in older, unhelpful habits that might not be the best for you. So it might not be avoiding it altogether. It might be saying, oh, I'm going to go early and stay for an hour, or I'm going to go at this time, or this is what I'm going to cap it at. Um, So boundaries are a really important logistical piece, I think, of navigating just change, you know, and and not understanding. This is where, you know, even if you are upholding new boundaries, not expecting everyone to understand what the hell boundaries are. I had no idea. And not until I think a lot of people are starting to talk boundaries online, I think a lot of humanity doesn't know what boundaries are. So you might be trying to enact and maintain boundaries with a group of people who have never heard of what the hell you're doing. So can't expect people, this goes into this deeper part of being misunderstood. As far as I say it, a really big helpful practice is as objectively as possible viewing these others in your life. Are these people that are living lives that are in alignment? or making lifestyle choices that are in alignment with what you want for your best self. You don't have to judge them if they're not, but don't expect them to understand different lifestyle choices if they're not living them or why someone else would. Mm. If these are people that don't understand boundaries and relationships or aren't living boundaries and relationships themselves, 
don't expect them to understand what the hell you're doing when you're doing something new. They're going to be completely confused, might even be, you know, negative or diminishing of it, right? If people aren't living it or understanding it themselves, they're, they're not going to afford you or most aren't put this you that understanding. So that can be really helpful in tolerating being misunderstood. If I can understand that you can't, in a sense, I don't have to wear it as personally, right? I don't see you using this. There's, there's no way you would get this. So, okay, I can accept what I'm doing as a different life choice than what you're doing and not allowing your negative reaction, say, to impact me. And I think that's a, a deeper process that a lot of us, I talk about being misunderstood a lot, because whether or not it's practically, you know, I need you to understand why I'm coming or not coming in this way to generally in life, you know, we need to be able to grant ourselves understanding when others cannot and possibly be even more flexible when we're faced with others not understanding. And what allows us, as far as I say it, to be more flexible is to have that vantage point of why they might be reacting the way they are, the emotional why that is. Gosh, I love that. I love what you said about, you know, setting these boundaries, whether it's around your choices or the holidays. In general, it doesn't have to be all or nothing. I know for years, like I would let myself visit family, but I would not be somewhere unless I had what I called an escape route. Like I had to have my own car with me. Like I could go as long as I had a way to drive away if I needed to. Yes. That's a beautiful example. I'm really happy you shared that because for a lot of people, you might not even use the escape route. You might. Knowing it's there, sometimes it's making alternate, just for the holidays, alternate accommodations that you can stay, maybe breaking a habit of having to stay with family, maybe having a hotel to stay at, or a B&B might be more comfortable to give yourself space away. Might be just building in distance moments if you are staying over to go have a walk. Maybe you're going to go run that errand. You know, small periods of distance in a challenging environment can go a long way. It's different for each of us. It's different contextually based on what we're walking into. But the clearer I think each of us get in those areas and the more I, meaning I enter this knowing that if I want to experience this family engagement or friend party differently, it's up for me to do differently. Meaning I'm not going to, or I don't suggest you walk in there and expect this experience to be somehow different than it's ever been. Not <laughs> going to be. So I have to prepare like you did. Okay, I'm going to anticipate walking into the same challenges I've always walked. But now I know what I'm going to do different to navigate them or to tolerate them in a new way. And I think if we can have those honest conversations with ourselves and put those escapes, if you will, whatever they look like in place, we can really empower ourselves to go into different difficult situations and not be so negatively impacted. But also write in that there might be some emotional stuff that gets kicked to the surface. So giving ourselves time, maybe on the other end of a successful experience, oh, hey, weather the storm to recalibrate, to let our body actually process all of the stuff that might have come up on a deeper level. And if you're a little tired and emotionally wrought on the other end of these holidays, that's normal. Give yourself the time to recalibrate emotionally before you hit the races back. And I say this because I know what then January 1st embodies for change. Now I have to do my whole world differently tomorrow, you know, and <laughs> you know, maybe for you, it's, it starts on January 7th because you need a little bit of time to decompress from challenging yourself through holidays. 
Oh, I love that building in the windows in the space to like decompress after an event that you know might push your buttons a little bit. And yeah, just like you said, Nicole, I didn't always use the escape route of my rental car, but knowing that that rental car was there allowed me to actually enjoy myself. So I love that. I also love what you said a minute ago about having compassion for where other people are coming from because I realized the thing that made the holidays the most painful for me was my deep need to be understood and to have my family get me. It's like, no, if you could just understand where I'm coming from, and I wanted that so badly, but I did some thinking and I realized like, I wasn't trying very hard to understand them. I just wanted to be understood. So just finding that middle space where like, I didn't need them to understand me. I didn't need to fully understand them, but like finding finding the parts of them that I could love hard and letting them love me hard in the way that they wanted to, like that's when it got a lot easier for me. Yeah, that's really beautiful. And I appreciate you sharing that. We all have to remember when the conversation is about family or caregivers or those ages of old relationships, that the stuff that's going to come up is going to be really deep rooted. So that part, I I commend you, Holly, for that work that you've done for yourself, because that part of you that desperately wanted them to see as difficult, you know, and all the difficulties that came with it, that I'm amazed that you're able to evolve beyond. That was that little child that we all carry, Holly, who probably desperately wanted that for as long as she can remember. So I say Mm -hmm. that to get giving ourselves the grace, especially when the conversation is around family and how we show up. And if we're still frustrated in that relationship in its entirety or how we're still participating, we have to understand that what's so difficult about it is because it's so deep rooted. And that's when that inner child that I'm always talking about and all of the wounds that she or he or whomever carries is really being triggered. Mm, Absolutely. Is there anything else, Nicole, that you would add around this period of the holidays? Anything that maybe we haven't touched on yet that you know is going to be a golden nugget for our listeners? No pressure if not. (laughs) Yeah, no. I mean, boundaries is the, it's interesting. I'm doing a, next week, I think it might be, I'm doing a live with another colleague on boundaries, boundaries, shifting, changing, building in the moments. And they might only be moments. I know what comes along with holidays is busy and plans, right? So any moment, even if you can't give yourself an entire off day to just decompress and relax, maybe it's an off hour or, you know, maybe instead of, you know, walking quickly to work and doing your emails, you put your phone away because that's the only time that you'll get a minute to just be within your own self. However, flexible, flexibly, you can position time for just you because a lot of what comes with the holidays is others, people, parties, often enjoyable events. But what that's doing is removing us again, for those of us, especially like me, who have lived a life of external orientation, that can really overtax us and we can quickly forget about the us in all of it. So it might not be the entire weekend or you know the, the deep longing that you want to just spend the Christmas day as you want to. Maybe you don't get that or you don't make the choice to give yourself that. If you can, that's an incredible gift to give, clearing out time and honoring what you want even if it's in indifference to what other people around you want of you, that's hard. So if you're not there, it might be micro moments. Like I said, it might be just building in, going to that yoga class at lunch and not thinking about the project that's waiting on your desk when you go back. Just being mindfully present to yourself is, I think, a golden nugget that I can offer. I know it's challenging, so it might look like small moments, but those small moments can go a long, long way. Something about the holidays is 
And while we want to share with others, I think that's part of our interpersonal nature. Um, we can't, for the period of time between Christmas and what we're going to extend it to the new year, it's almost six weeks. I mean, from Thanksgiving, it's almost like six weeks. So if I go unnoticed for six weeks, going into January, I might be a little bit depleted of a, of a human. Mm, so remembering to fill our cup up as we are, I'm yeah. cheesy as hell, as, as yeah. we're filling up eggnog cups with, with yes. the rest of our family. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Nicole, this has been an amazing conversation. And I just want to thank you once again for the work that you do, because it's not only paving the way for this tribe of self-healers being empowered and, and changing their own lives, but you're also your work is really paving the way for holistic practitioners of all kinds in so many ways, just, just with validation and also being an example of what is possible. So I'm going to get all verklempt over here, but I just have to thank you from the bottom of my heart for, the, for who you are and the work that you do. I am too. Thank you so much for saying that, Holly. I was having all the feels while you were saying that. There was a little part of me that was resisting. My little girl was like, oh no, I'm not doing that. I'm not painting anyway. That, that cannot be me. So I have my own you know, um, conflicts that I, that I come up against in this journey, but it's beyond an honor. I feel that this concept, one of the, the woo-woos that was very conceptual for my very um, fight or flight oriented space line was this idea of passion. I thought I was not gifted and my partner has very much passions about a lot of things. So I'm like, oh, I missed that chip as well. Here's something else. So being able to actually settle into the reality that I am passionate and I, I do have a direction and a purpose and having people like you to support my direction and my purpose has meant everything. So I reflect right back to you how indebted I feel to all of the support that I've gained along the way and all the work that you're doing. You, I mean, if we're talking about my professional journey or my personal journey, they're both intertwined and supported by these amazing communities that I've now have or I'm orbiting in and I am honored to to connect with you and to continue to connect with you and I'm super excited for the work you're doing in the world because you're paving the way right alongside of me in a lot of ways. Thank you, Nicole. And it's just I'm just excited for the world. I'm just yes, excited for I was gonna end on the and the and the you know how empowered I feel on the collective level. I mean you really it's very so dichotomous. You can have someone who looks at it and say we're going down in, in kind of a society and then I just look at how we're evolving up in a society. So it's just really a lot of the ways what you're choosing to focus on, I think. Yeah, I, I can't agree anymore. And and I just think like back, like I really hit rock bottom in 2012 and the landscape was just not the same as it is now. I think if you feel like you're at rock bottom right now, it's like, oh, there's no better time to be at rock bottom than now because look at all these resources and amazing tools that you have at your disposal. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. That's the same thing, the double-edged sword of, I hear this conversation often of social media. You know, I agree. It's how do you choose to use it? What is the function? Because on the other edge of that sword of it's too much, it's too distracting, I'm comparing myself down and depleting my sense of self-worth. It's an endless, vast array of resources and connections that I never in a million years would have been able to make unless it existed. So it's, again, conscious choice lives in the middle of how am I using anything in my environment? How am I perceiving anything that's happening around me? And really embodying the fact that we have choice more than we think we have, more than I know I thought I had for the better part of three decades. So now that I'm living it, why I'm so passionate to share it with others. Yeah. And that passion, man, it's it's so funny to me that you you thought you didn't have it because it just like radiates out of you. It's it's so bright. You saying and, that. Yeah, we we had met uh, I don't know if you ever read any Wayne Dyer. Oh, I love Wayne Dyer. 
It's incredible. Yeah. So my partner and I years ago were reading we one of his books. Um, we kind of read the same books in tandem at, often at times. And she was really relating because he was talking about knowing his passion from a young age. And and she was like, oh, my God, Wayne is me. And I'm like, you know, I felt like the, the, the kid left down. Of course, I was disgruntled about I didn't, I didn't navigate that in the most mature way possible. Fine. You go hang out with Wayne and be yeah, passionate. I'll just be over here. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> <laughs> I acted too. I'll tell the truth about it. Oh. I thought like, okay, well, I guess I don't have that. So that's as real in real time how not long ago, I truly believe that I just didn't have that. And now here I am walking that journey and obviously communicating it in just my way of being, which is really validating to hear. So thank you. You're so welcome. You are so welcome. Nicole, for those of you who don't know where to find you and aren't already like plugged into you, um, where can we find you? What's on the horizon for you? What do you have going on? Can you talk a little bit about Self Healer Circle, all that good stuff? Yeah, for sure. So the, the main hub that I'm always shouting out is the Instagram, the dot holistic dot psychologist. Pretty much everything I do runs through there in one way, shape or form. I am also in love with the link tree option. So in there, you can find links to... Um, have a website with an email list um, out now. If you want to sign up, I have a free journal prompt, future self journal prompts that go out upon sign up. You can grab that in that link tree. I also have a YouTube channel every Sunday for those YouTubers out there. I do release a new video. They're usually short and very practical that comes out every Sunday. I'm on Instagram every day putting out new content, living the work. You'll see me journaling. I, I really cap my morning routine with just journaling, but there's a lot there. I'm always sharing, you know, kind of my own pieces of, of the puzzle and concepts and things like that. So following along, you can get a lot, a lot of resources. And on that email list, pretty much anything I develop, I release to the followers. I'm really, I'm not proprietary. I really just want people who are interested in doing this work to have the opportunity to do the work. Um, so the newest addition is I'm, I'm offering a virtual membership. It's called the Self Healer Circle. We launched it on November 1st. So the first enrollment period is closed for now, but it's really harnessing the power of community healing. Uh, I think it's an incredible, it's a part of my journey that was lacking when I began healing. I felt very isolated and very lonely. So I know how much community can heal. So the membership is my attempt at fostering a virtual community of people from around really the world at this point, which is mind blowing to me, but where every month um, there will be, it will be opening in the future. So I'm not just talking about something that people can't, can't have access to. It <laughs> Sorry, will. doors have closed. The ship has sailed. <laughs> um, but I, I will be reopening it probably, honestly, Holly, on the other side of a move that I'm having for myself this, this winter, but every month will also be diving into a content of healing. I'll have experts, myself included, really teaching content and helping kind of self helping guide people through a self-directed healing journey with the support of other self healers. So I'm probably, I have my eye on March ish. Um, I say the ish because I'm planning to move from the cold of the Northeast to sunny LA and February 1st, if all things go well, cross country move style. And then once I'm settled in, I'm going to reopen that membership. So I will be shouting that from the rooftops of Instagram. So anyone who might be interested in that experience can definitely stay posted um, via my Instagram. And as soon as I have more clarity, I'll be letting everyone know when the date of that next enrollment will be. 
Wonderful. And we will link all of this up in the show notes so you can go find Nicole. And oh my gosh, you're doing exactly what I did last year. So last February 1st, I moved from Southeast Michigan in the middle of the polar vortex. It was literally negative 15 degrees when we packed the Penske truck. And then I moved down to Asheville and it was 60 when we got here. So Uh I'm going to hope that you have better weather for your move, Nicole. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm flying. So as long as the airplane can lift off, I don't give a shit what the weather is because I am not looking, looking back. For <laughs> in, in all seriousness, Holly, we, my partner and I are very non-attached and we've moved so often now with our stuff that there's not much stuff that I'm interested in keeping. So I'm actually going to donate or, you know, kind of give away most, I'm, I'm not getting most of my apartment so that I can just, I mean, really, like, you know, the mementos, there's very few of the, the real the, the small stuff that can fit into a suitcase or be shipped will go. And then the rest of it, I'm just going to start anew on the other side. So I'm, when I say I'm getting on an airplane, I don't care the weather or, you know, what about it? As long as my cats come and they're get taken care of and their trans, their transport, I don't care what happens. <laughs> Oh my gosh. And that's the way to do it. That is absolutely the way to do it. Well, we all wish you a really safe move regardless. And once again, Nicole, just thank you so much for coming on the show today. Really, really appreciate it. It's been amazing talking with you. Of course. It's been truly a pleasure, Holly. Thank you. That conversation was hands down the highlight of my year so far. So thank you to Dr. Nicole for coming on the show thank you for listening. A couple things for you. If you are interested in the food mood connection and you want to learn more about that, head on over to mindspeakpodcast.com backslash food mood, all one word, mindspeakpodcast.com backslash food mood. It's also linked up in the show notes. Everything that we talked about today resources, etc. All of that is linked up in the show notes. You can also just head over to mindspeakpodcast.com to learn more about the show. I also have linked up there a ebook about subconscious self-sabotage and there's a little bonus audio there for you too. So it's all linked up in the show notes. You can head over to the website to learn more. Really appreciate you hanging out today. You can find Dr. Nicole over at the.holistic.psychologist on Instagram. And you can come hang out with me over at Holly Fisher Higgins. I look forward to getting to know you and cheering you on. And until next time, go believe in you. I do.